Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdina Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yoma, Daf Yud, page ten. Now, for a change, we're back to framing our daf. Uh, we haven't done this in a while, but I think that this daf warrants it. I would say that, especially Amud Aleph, I guess it's framing one Amud, but still, uh, we have here, I would call it a historical awareness, uh, uh, paying really careful attention to history, or at least events as, or some kind of record of events as they unfolded, uh, countries as they developed, nations as they developed. Now, this is not history the way historians do it. It is a Gemara presentation of what happens in the Torah, right? So that the, the daf really opens with a discussion of uh, Genesis, Breshit, Perak Yud, the 10th Perak of Breshit, where there's a long list of you know, which people derive from whom. Now, in this case, it's a families, right? It's each father beget, begets, begat, right? Each one of the sons. And these people became the fathers of nations. So they're mentioned here in a way as, I mean, again, it's not exactly history the way historians do it, but it is an awareness of the passage of time. It is certainly not an ahistorical approach. Um, again, even if the historians would argue about I don't know, even the consecutive order of things, but certainly uh, some of the context and things like that, it's not relevant here. Really, the the Gemara is paying attention, you know, from a Torah perspective. So, for example, there's a discussion of, you know, who's, you know, where where do we have um, Persia, right? Who's descended from Persia? Who is a progenitor? progenitor, excuse me, of Persia. And of course, Persia becomes, you know, the location where the, it's the seat of the Gemara, right? The Talmud Bavli is written in what amounts to, not exactly Persia, but it's kind of like a hop, skip, and a jump right there. Um, certainly there are scholars today who are talking about the influence of Persian culture and Persian language on the Talmud Bavli. So it's not ridiculous that the Gemara would be paying attention to this. Again, it's not the only historical context that it pays attention to um, in, paying it, in, in looking at where exactly does everything fit together in the history of the, I don't know what, the nations, the countries, and so on. So we have here um, a quick statement, which is going to, again, present the, the empires as I, you know, would want to call them. There's the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, and these were not, um, they were, one took over from the other, right? They were not in existence, really, not in their empire status at the same time. So Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, uh, who compiled the Mishnah, says that Rome was destined to fall into the hands of Persia. That, right, that means really Persia should have the upper hand. So all of this is a verse from the book of Jeremiah, uh, which is simply the proof text for the claim that Rome will fall into the hands of Persia. But Rabbi Bar-Ula, you know, does not like this idea. Matkif le Rabbi Bar-Ula, my mashma parasu. Where do you get this idea that this young flock, right, that was in the verse from the Yermiao, why do you think that that is Persia? Dichtiv, ha'ayel asheriti ba'al ha'karnaim malchei madayu paras. There's another verse in the book of Daniel that says that we've got horns, right, 
that represent Madai, the Media, and Persia. So if you've got a ram representing Persia, then you're not going to have, um, then, then the implication is that you can't have just the youngest of the flock, right? Once you've got horns, you're no longer the youngest of the flock. Uh, so he says, Yavan, what about Greece? It could be the goat could be the king of Greece. Okay. All of this, as I say, is not exactly history the way historians do it, but it is paying attention to the passage of time and the various empires. So I'm going to skip down just a drop and again address this question because it, it, why are they talking about this at all, right? It seems like a whole new topic. It fits into the discussion of the chronology between the first temple and the second temple. So again, we recognize his name from yesterday and, of course, before, but really also yesterday when he's talking specifically about the differences between the first temple and the second temple. So again, he says, you know, in the future, Rome will fall into the hands of Persia. So, let's break this down. First of all, this is Kalvachoma reasoning. It's a logical inference, right? That Rome was, the claim is that Rome is supposed to fall in the hands of Persia. So, the claim is that just as by Rishon, the first temple, right, that was built by B'nai Shem, the children, the descendants of Shem, and the Kazdaim, the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, destroyed it, Naflu Kazdaim biyad Parsiim, and then the Kazdaim, the Babylonians, fell in the hands of the Persians. So doesn't it then make sense to say that Mikdash, the second Beit Mikdash that was built, the Persians built it, meaning Daryavish and them, right? The, the Aliyah from the Babylonian captivity. And then the Romans came and destroyed it. Shouldn't it make sense to say that, well, the, by the same token, that in, indeed the Kazdaim fell into the hands of the, and the Persians, so too the Romans should fall into the hands of the Persians. Now, Rav objects to this. Amarav Romi. So again, he, claims, he quotes this claim that Persia is destined to fall into the hands of Rome. Amrule Rav Kahana, Rav Asi Larav, Biyad Right? Are the builders really going to fall into the hands of the destroyers if Persia are the ones who, if Adita Paraski should be on Romi, Persia should fall into the hands of Rome. I'm sorry. So he finally, Rav says it backwards. And the, and the logic is, but one second, if the Persians did the building, then how could they fall into the hands of the destroyers? It should be the opposite. Amar in. No, he says, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. Gzerat Malachi, it is the king's decree. The king here with a capital K, king, meaning God. He says, well, they too, meaning the Romans, uh, I'm sorry, they too, the Persians, also, they also destroyed synagogues, meaning the Persians are not any better than the Romans. Let them fall into the hands of the Romans. So, this discussion, and it goes on, right? The, whether Persians are destined to fall into the hands of Rome, it does seem to be that that is the correction. Of course, from a historical perspective, we know that that is indeed what happened, that Rome is the most, uh, 
I can't say Rome is the most recent conqueror of this of the area of the Jewish, you know, Commonwealth type of thing, but certainly when we're talking about the temples, you know, that's what happens. Rome is the destroyer of the Second Temple, and anything that happened after that happened much, much, much later. So, so what we have here is the same way that we have a discussion about Rome. I'm sorry, about Bayit Rishon and Bayit Shani, the first and second temples, we have a discussion over, you know, which different nations were conquerors at whichever different times to, um, and to put that into some kind of historical context, in addition to biblical verses, which, you know, herald the idea that one nation is going to fall into the hands of the other, even if it takes a little bit of while and a little bit of dispute between the members of Chazal to put them into the historical order that we know. Well, it's just very so interesting to see how Chazal had a real sense of history. I agree this is parallel, particularly the part about Rome and Persia, uh, to our discussion before about the differences between Bayit Rishon and Bayit Cheney. But, you know, looking, seeing at how Chazal view themselves in terms of the world, other nations, the map of the world, uh, you can look at many different versions of the Talmud here that will have a map and trying to figure out where all of these places are that are mentioned really shows us that Chazal had a, you know, knew the world around them and wanted to understand it. Um, I want to just point out two things that are on this staff. So the Gemara, you know, in the middle of its discussion about Rome and Persia has this discussion about, you know, um, is Persia going to fall into Rome's hands or Rome's going to fall into Persia's hands and, you know, which empire, uh, was worse. And one of the things that they do here is they quote, you know, uh, uh, they, you know, they quote a, well, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, uh, says in the name of Rabbi, right? Atida Romi paraz, that Rome is destined to fall in the lands, uh, in the hands of, excuse me, Persia. Um, and they quote here a pasuk, um, from Yermiyahu, Perk Memtet Patsuk Chaf. Um, and, um, and then the Gemara quotes, you know, Rabbi Barula, who objects to Rebbe's interpretation, right? How does Rebbe know that Seirei Hatzon is necessarily the kingdom of Persia? Of Persia. Um, and then they have a very interesting uh, little comment here, um, where it says, Kiselagrav Chaviva Bar Sur. Maki. So Rav Chaviva Bar Sumaki, right, he goes up to Eretz Yisrael, Amra Kamei Rabbanan, and he basically said this objection that Rabbi Bar Ula had uh, to Rebbe's uh, understanding this Pasuk, right? I, I didn't read the whole thing of what Rabbi Bar Ula said, but he said maybe it was Yavan. How does he know that it was necessarily Persia? And Amarle, this rabbi, says back to Rav uh, Chaviva Bar Sumake, Mandalo Yoda Perushe Kare Mutev Tiyufta Rabbi. Is it possible that someone who does not know the simple meaning of a Pasuk of verses should raise a challenge to? Rebbe. And basically what he's trying to say here is, is that we sort of respect Rebbe's interpretation. Rebbe really understood uh, Sukim, and who are you to challenge anything that Rebbe said? And so I think this little line here just gives us a little insight into how respected Rebbe was, right? That there was no room once he gave a particular interpretation and had his reason for that interpretation. And then they go on to explain uh, a little bit more 
um, how they got to that, you know, how they get to the, uh, you know, they quote a bracelet to show why C.E. Ray Hudson is Persia. But, you know, there's a little sidebar here that I think really shows um, how important uh, Rebbe was and Rebbe's tour was, and it really wasn't something that was supposed to be questioned. Um, the last piece I just want to point out is this last discussion here, which talks about the lishka of the parhedron and talking about whether or not it needs to have a mezuzah on it, um, and whether or not that's a deoraisa, that's a takanav derabanan, according to Rabbi Yehuda. Rashi says it's so that it actually didn't look like a jail or something like that, and that's why you put a mezuzah on it, even though it's, uh, you know, the, that lishka for the Kohen Gadol was really just used for one week out of the entire year. It wasn't lived in regularly, but you wanted to make it look like it was a place that people lived in. Um, and I thought it was fascinating, the comparison that they make here in Amud Bet, basically between the sukkah and this lishka, right? That both of them are basically temporary um, sort of dwellings uh, that are used. They're only used for a week during the entire year. Um, and therefore, do we treat them in a way that they need to have uh, the, anything else that you do in a house regularly, right? Here they're talking about mezuzah, uh, but, um, you know, uh, but with sukkah, they even come up with... Uh, you know, um, you know, with other things that maybe you need to do because it's considered to be a residence. Um, and, you know, just the idea that essentially it is a temporary um, or not really a, you know, it's not a permanent residence. And therefore, what does that mean um, halachically, uh, right? So for sukkah, you know, they talk about besides having to have a mezuzah, um, you know, also that maybe um, you need to have, you know, issues about if you bring produce into there, uh, would you need to take maser, right? They question that. And also, are you obligated an Arif with it? Um, and I just thought this was interesting that, first of all, the Arif question we did not see with sukkah in a Reuven, right? Was with a sukkah, I mean, it's framed a little bit differently. It does talk about what types of huts, residences, structures, buildings are considered to be a structure as such that it w it's a residence enough that you would have to include it into an Erev. But I don't remember there being a specific discussion around a sukkah. And here they're really talking about a sukkah, I believe, as it was used um, on, uh, you know, on Sukkot, not, you know, uh, not in, in any other way. Um, and so I just thought this was an interesting uh, parallel that they brought up here. Um, but then, you know, um, at the end here, um, it gets into a discussion about, you know, what exactly is um, the, um, what exactly is the underlying, what what's underlying uh, the dispute here um, in the Mishnah regarding sukkah and what's underlying the dispute, uh, well, you know, about uh, in the Brisa about having a mezuzah for this lishka. And so sukkah tame lechud, right? With, with sukkah, there's one principle here. Rabbi Yehuda letame, Rabbi Yehuda rules, right, that a sukkah does mean a mezuzah, um, and it follows his reasoning. The Amar, sukkah dirat keva binyan. So Rabbi Yehuda, actually, it's interesting, he holds that the reason why a sukkah does need a mezuzah is because it's actually permanent. Even though we often talk about sukkahs being a non-permanent, but the week of sukkahs itself, it's supposed to be a permanent residence, and therefore, if it's a permanent residence, it's going to require a mezuzah. And therefore, it's going to need a mezuzah, and that's according to Rabbi Yehuda. For Rabbanan Latame, 
Nehu, but according to the rabbis, they're going to follow their reasoning. But according to the Rabbanan, right, Sukkah is really just going to be a, a temporary residence. You're not going to meet a mezuzah. Then we go back to the Brisa about the Lishkat Parhadrin, um, which again, there's a machlokas over if it needs a mezuzah or not. The Lishkat Lachud, and here, what's the principle here for the Lishkat? Rabbanan Sabri Dira Baal Karchashmat Dira. The rabbis maintained that an enforced residence, right? In other words, the Kohen Gadol was forced basically to live here. It's still considered a residence, and there's st- therefore it still needs a mezuzah. For Rabbi Yehuda, Sever Dira Bal Karcha Loshma Dira. Rabbi Yehuda holds no, it's not a forced residence, it's not really a residence. And therefore, on a Dil Raisa level, the Mefarshim explained, you would not need a mezuzah. But it's on a rabbinic level that it required that there be a mezuzah there. Because we don't want people to say that the Kohen Gadol was basically sort of locked in jail. And I think this brings a different element to this period of separation that the Kohen Gadol has to do Um you know, that it was forced to ban the Kohen Gadol. Maybe this was not totally pleasant for the Kohen Gadol. And so they wanted to do things to make it look like, no, this is just where the Kohen Gadol is really going to live, and that's why it has a mezuzah. And, you know, there's some sensitivity here. It's interesting to me. It doesn't come out until Daf Yud, because we already started talking about this, you know, from the first Mishnah. But there's a sensitivity to here. What does this appear like to other people? And they don't want to make it look like that this separation is a locking up of the Kohen Gadol. And therefore, Rabbi Yehuda, who under normal circumstances, unlike the Sukkah, would say, no, the Lishka here for the Kohen Gadol is not a real residence, but to Rabbanim, we're going to make it look like a real residence so people don't feel like the Kohen Gadol himself is being locked up. And maybe that's also just not a nice way for the people to feel like how the Kohen Gadol is going into the Avodah of, uh, of Yom Kippur. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.